0: I want you to turn in your Bibles today. We're gonna to spend time in two passages. We're gonna to go to Isaiah 58, Isaiah 58. And we're gonna talk about um, the ideas in that passage. Um, we're also going to um, spend time in John chapter four. John chapter four. So if you go to Isaiah 58, you kind of keep your finger there and you go over to John four and we'll, we'll kind of end in John four. And so uh, I want to remind you that uh, I'm, so, I'm so grateful for what God is doing in our church and in the three communities that we have, one in Lake Travis, one here, and one in Kyle. So grateful for what God is doing. On Easter Sunday, I just want to remind you, 76 people gave their hearts to Jesus. Like by signing a card and saying, yes, I want to commit my life to Christ six people that is an awesome thing and we can never be a church where that does not happen Right? That has to happen over and over again, and there will be seasons where we push forward, and there'll be seasons where we're trying to figure things out. But we must have people meeting Jesus. Fifty-four people were baptized just a couple of weeks ago, and that was water baptism. If you were, couldn't be there, it was so fun. This huge picnic. It was. It was just fantastic to see families gathered around and seeing people experiencing new life in Christ. It is. Uh, it's one of the most important things that we do around here, helping people take a step towards Jesus in obeying him in water baptism. Since the beginning of this church, we've really believed in three things. One is the presence of God is so meaningful, and it is the change agent for people's lives. We've said it this way, we believe that God is present and active among us. If, if, you just, if you just believe that God is present with you at work, present and active in your marriage, present and active no matter what you're doing, whether it's grocery shopping or it's dealing with kids or it's, or it's doing a, a business deal downtown, God is with you. And if you will believe that, it will, it will lead you. It will, he will guide you with his presence. The second thing that's been so important to us is relationship. Relationships are the carrier of all ministry, all work of the kingdom happens in relationships, all lasting um, work among us that Jesus does has to happen in context of relationships and community. And that's the way people are discipled. That's the way people learn how to follow Jesus is it's model for them. And they, they, they join together with a group of people and they learn together and they grow together. But the third one is mission. The third idea that we've really just always believed and we've We've articulated this mission, and the mission is living as God's faithful presence, God's faithful relational presence in our communities. I want to submit to you that for many, the best way that they're ever going to experience God's presence is because you live next to them or because you're in the, in the cubicle beside them. Or because God's faithful presence is represented by your faithful presence at work. Your faithful presence in your neighborhood. And that, that is a mission. And, and some people talk about the mission as, this is our purpose. I don't know if that's quite accurate. It's really important. It's really significant. But the purpose is people experiencing God and his presence. That's, that's what we're trying to get to. The mission is kind of like all the things we might do <laughs> to get that to happen. Do you see what I'm saying? And so we can't get the, I don't want us to get the mission uh, out in front of, what the purpose is, which is being inhabited by God himself and, and being able to have a relationship with him. And so the mission keeps, put, keeps putting that on the forefront of our lives everywhere we go. And, and, and sometimes I think it's easy, you know, the statistics say that the farther you get away from your salvation experience, the first time you said yes to Jesus, the farther away for you get from that, the less you are mission-minded. Those are what the statistics say. And it's because when your life changes, at, at first you're like surrounded by all the people you've always known. But then you start being surrounded by a bunch of people who love Jesus. And then there's a process there. And, and if we're not careful, we leave all the people who need Jesus behind. And I think we have to circle around to this idea every once in a while. So we're going to spend the next few weeks and we're going to talk about this idea. And the idea is open your eyes. Open your eyes to see what God is doing in the earth. Open your eyes to see what God is doing in your world, in your experience, in in your life. What is he doing? What is he saying? And what does he want you to do with him? How does he want you to collaborate with him? So we start in John 4.35. John, I, I told you Isaiah 58, but I'm just gonna put this scripture up here and you can read it off the screen. Look at it. It says, this is Jesus talking and he's saying, to his disciples, he says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. There's a saying that they had, and I, I got a long time to go before the harvest is coming. We got time, we can, we can rest. He says, I tell you, Jesus said, open your eyes and look at the fields, they are ripe for harvest. Ripe for harvest. I was thinking about this verse and I was, I was toying with the idea of why we close our eyes. Why do we close our eyes? There's several reasons, right? We close our eyes to sleep. Oh, I love sleep. Any, any sleep lovers out here? Oh, love, oh, that's too many. <laughs> we, we see, second service, that's what it is. It's second service, you're right. Second service, all the sleepers come. Okay, that's good. All the other people are in the other service. Okay, so so I love sleep. We close our eyes for sleep, for rest. We close our eyes, I, I don't know if you realize this, but when you get hurt, you smash your thumb with a hammer, it's like, Ugh! eyes closed. Don't want to see that. <laughs> um, we, we, so, uh, sometimes we close our eyes when we're trying to concentrate. It's like, oh, I'm trying to think of that word. What was that word? You close your eyes. Sometimes um, we close our eyes when we just don't want our kids to see the thing that's gonna happen in the movie we're watching together. <laughs> you ever done that? Like like I'm, we're watching a movie, uh, oh, close your eyes. We've like trained our kids when to close. Their, they know when to close their eyes better than we do now. And it's like, it's like turn, like we've taught them, oh, close your eyes, Here, nope, close your eyes, it's not good. You know, it's something bloody or gory or scary or more mature. Um, <laughs> we'll be like, We'll be like, okay, close your eyes. But now they do it to us. We'll be there they're watching the movie, and they'll be like, oh, Dad, you want to close your eyes on this part? It's bad. Don't, want, don't watch this part. This isn't good. And, uh, and so it's like you're watching the movie. You cl- close your eyes. You don't want to see that part. You don't want to see that part. If you've ever ridden a roller coaster... We talked about roller coasters last week as a metaphor. If you've ever ridden a roller coaster, you get up to that highest place and there are two kinds of people who ride roller coasters, right? There are people who get to the top and they look at everything and they want to experience it. And then there are people who close their eyes and don't want to see it all. How many eye closers do we have? Yeah, see, this is crazy. Why? Just one question. Why ride the roller coaster? (laughs) Hello? You're like up to the top of the thing and it's like, this is the reason you're on it? Yes, this is awesome. If life is like a roller coaster, don't close your eyes at the parts you don't like. Don't close your eyes at the parts you're uncomfortable with. I think Jesus is saying this. For many of us, I wonder if we have tunnel vision. We, we, look, we, we, we just see our own interests, our own desires, our own pursuits. Everything becomes clouded, filtered by what we want. You know, most of us have some kind of social media presence, and the problem with social media presence is it's curated perfectly to get what you want. I don't like that guy's political stance. I'll just go ahead and hide him. What's the what's the term, babe? You, you always use. No, you don't. You don't ever do it. You just tell me about it, on Facebook. You don't unfollow them because then they can see you. You hide, them. you hide them. So hiding is right. No, you can. Here's the thing. You can't. You can unfollow and you can still be friends. So that's a new update, right? Has that always been the case? Because it used to be that people would see you unfollowing them. And, oh, unfriending, that's the right word. I can't believe I screwed up this whole analogy right here. This is so stupid. It's because I don't do Facebook. I was like, eh, maybe I thought she'd give it to me, and she was like, so, <laughs> sorry, babe. Um, perfectly curated to get whoever you want, and you don't want to see the other parts. I fear that most of us are settling into a way of looking at everything around us because of the world we live in because of consumer mentality, because of convenience, that we have a skewed worldview by a faulty understanding of what God wants us to see, with a prosperity-induced cataract, creating a visionless, powerless faith that keeps us double-minded and half-hearted and even blind to the miracles that God wants us to see, wants us to participate in. And so with that as an opening, let's read Isaiah 58, long passage of scripture. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. You can follow along if you have another version. I'm going to read it in the Message Bible. It's a very strongly sort of worded modern translation. And so I want you to see what it says. It says, Shout! a full-throated shout, hold nothing back, a trumpet blast shout. It sounds like something really good is about to happen, right? Read the next phrase. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. (laughs) Face my family, Jacob, with their sins. Look at verse two, they're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying about me all the time. To all appearances, they're a nation of right living people, law-abiding, God-honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? and love having me on their side. But they also complain. Why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. I think this is an interesting part in the, in the chapter. This is the book of Isaiah, and he's, he's talking to God's people, and God's giving him this message because he wants to call them out of their hypocrisy. And so he's, he's saying, I do look away. And when I look away, here's why. He says, the bottom line on your fast days is profit. Your fasting days should be non-working days is the way you should hear it. And some of you are like, fast, why are they going so fast? What is, what is this about speed? Fasting. If you're, if you're unfamiliar, is going without food or going without something so that you can stir up within you a hunger for God. It's a worship. It's an act of worship. And that's what he's talking about. He's, he says, the bottom line on your fast days is profit. You're selling and buying stuff. You're, you drive your employees much too hard. You fast but at the same time you bicker and fight. You fast but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast day I'm after? A day to show off humility, to put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting? A fast day that I, God, would like? this is the kind of fast day I'm after, to break the chains of injustice, get rid of exploitation in the workplace, free the oppressed, cancel debts. Check this out. Verse seven, what I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill clad, being available to your own families. Do this and the lights will turn on and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. And then when you pray, God will answer. God, you will call out for help and I'll say, here I am. If you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims. Quit gossiping about other people's sins. If you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight." I will always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places. Firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew. Rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything. Restore old ruins. Rebuild and renovate. Make the community livable again if you watch your step on the Sabbath. And don't use my holy day for personal advantage. If you treat the Sabbath as a day of joy, God's holy day as a celebration, if you honor it by refusing business as usual, making money, running here and there, then you'll be free to enjoy God. Oh, and I'll make you ride high and soar above it all. I'll make you feast on the inheritance of your ancestor Jacob. Yes, God says it's so. That's a powerful scripture, isn't it? I'm convicted just reading it, right? These people that Isaiah is speaking to, he's identifying the hypocrisy in their lives in their acts of worship and in their ordinary activities. Jesus said in in the Gospels, he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? He said, "This love God, but he didn't leave it alone, right? He added this other thing, love your neighbor as yourself. These two things must always be firmly pressed together in our lives in order for our worship to be meaningful. In order for our songs to have any value, we have to figure out how to live this part of the scripture out in our culture, in our neighborhoods, in our city. If you, I want to draw your attention to verse 10. Your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I love that language. My shadowed life, all the stuff that I've had in my life, God will begin to shine his light in my life. All of you have a little glow stick in the seat back pocket in front of you. I want to take it out right now. Those of you in the front row, it's down underneath your chair. But you just take out that little glow stick right there. All right, and I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to break it. Go ahead, break it. Just break it. Break it. Break it all the way. I got a big one up here. Break it. Look how good you are at breaking. You're breaking this thing. You're You're, you're putting it... You're making something happen. You know what you're making. You know what you're, you know. What's happening? A change, a dramatic chemical change, is happening right before your eyes. A miracle <laughs> is happening right here as this thing gets broken. You were so obedient when I said break it. When I'm telling you to break open your lives, I want you to be just as obedient to to what the Lord is saying to you. I want you to think about this. Your glow sticks, these are made in such a way that if you can enjoy them right where you are, but it's really not made for this. They're not made to look at in the light. They're made to look at in the darkness. Come on, hold it up, people. Look at that, look at this, look, this is so funny. You guys are like, when I went in the light and I'm just talking, you're kinda like, oh yeah, this is cool, yeah, fine, whatever, whatever. As soon as the darkness comes, you're like, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> There's something, okay, that's enough. No, I, 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 we'll go back to it. Listen, it's fun. It's fun to bring light into the darkness. It's fun. Listen, I want to invite you on a journey the next several weeks. This is a journey I'm on. I, 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 I could be one of the most guiltiest among us because it's my job to be a pastor. And I can easily get surrounded, insulated by all the people that know Jesus and love him. I gotta work hard at this. I gotta make sure that I'm living this out because the gospel is, is bigger than this. If you look at your message notes, you can see it. Um, where is the hole in our understanding of the gospel? I think so, for so many of us, our understanding of what the gospel is, there's a hole in it because the word gospel literally means glad tidings or good news. Webster defines gospel as glad tidings especially concerning salvation and the kingdom of God as announced by the world or to the world by Christ. The gospel signifies the coming of God's kingdom on earth. Here's what what Dallas Willard said in his book. It's really kind of a poignant passage. He says, faith today is treated as something that only should make us different, not that actually does. (laughs) or can make us different. In reality, we vainly struggle against the evils of this world, waiting to die and go to heaven. Somehow we've gotten the idea that the essence of faith is entirely a mental or inward inward thing. No. No, the gospel signifies the coming of God's kingdom, the good news that God is coming here and has come Signified by Jesus, it, 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 like he ushers in this kingdom. And, and, and this is a kingdom that's different than any other kingdom. If you look at Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 3 through 10, this is, these are the Beatitudes. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, they'll be filled. Right, like, the, like he goes through the whole thing, the merciful. Blessed are the pure. Blessed are the peacemakers, Not people who fight all the time, but the people who make peace. Blessed are those who are persecuted. This is all this upside down kingdom that we have to embrace. We're called to be the kind of people that will take the poor and the sick and the grieving and the cripple and the slaves and the widows and the orphans and the lepers and the aliens and we lift them up. To be embraced by God, we lift them up. Our embrace of them is the embrace of God. Jesus says in Luke 14. Here's here's what he says. If we we're gonna pick up the story here. Verse 14 says that Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and news of him went all throughout the surrounding region and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So he goes home where he he grew up and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So it's the the scrolls are there and he could stand up to read. He went up, he took a scroll and he stood up and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it is written, the same book that we were just reading from. And he read in Isaiah 61, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He's sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What this means is Jesus was saying, this promise has come to you now. I'm here. And it's all going to start happening. What Jesus was doing is he was including them. He was inviting them to be part of what was happening and so I think when we think about the gospel, sometimes we miss some stuff. Here, here, break it down into three different things, three elements of Jesus's mission. Check this out. The proclamation of the good news of salvation. That's, one of, that's the thing we all kind of focus on. That's the 76 people that said yes to Jesus a few Sundays ago. We understand this. We we understand this is people giving their lives to Christ and then being born again on the inside. Something transformational happening to them on the inside. Millions and millions of people have done this, and it's incredible, but there's a second component, second element, and it's compassion and healing for the sick and the sorrowful. Jesus said, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and recovery of sight to the blind. But that's not all there is. Jesus' ministry did not just go to the people who were well off. He he was always crossing the boundaries of of people that didn't quite fit into the community, the leper and the hungry, the people who need healing. But there's a third element too, and it's the majestic commitment to justice. When he read in Isaiah, Jesus was proclaiming the liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, oppressed. They're, they're, they're struggling, they're burdened. He was proclaiming the year of the Lord had come to them. Part of Jesus' mission, part of the gospel is setting people free from their oppression, people who have been victimized by injustice. And that's whether it's political injustice or social injustice or it's economic injustice. He came to let people experience that. We kind of leave that out. We kind of leave that stuff out sometimes. And it's not good when we just relegate, like like when we turn off all the people on our Facebook page who don't agree with us politically, we just start to zero in on this kind of, tunnel vision of who who we are and the world we live in. And and what Jesus is saying to us and what he's saying to all who will hear it is, open your eyes and see what's out there. When it comes to the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, the down and out, I think sometimes we've cut those verses out of our Bible. Did you know there's 2,000 verses regarding the marginalized and the oppressed and the poor? And so I think this is so important. I want you to turn over to John 4, and we'll just read there this story. And we're just going to take our time. We're going to read through this story because I think it is instructional on how Jesus wants us to behave in a culture where people are in trouble, where they're struggling, where, they're, where they need freedom. So here it is, verse 1, chapter 4 of John. He says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisee had, not, had heard The Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. (laughs) Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Little side note here. Check this out. What this is saying is people, the religious people started talking, keeping score between who was doing really cool stuff, John or Jesus. And you know what Jesus' (laughs) response to that was? All right. You guys, you're doing good. I'm going over here. I'm not going to participate in this weird religious scorekeeping kind of comparison. When we talk about these things today, I want you to understand that God has a way for you (laughs) to move forward in what we're talking about that's going to look different than somebody else. And 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 you need to you need to realize that he deals with each of us personally, and and so Jesus is not hung up on this, right? He's not going to compare himself to these other people. So he goes back to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. That's a key verse there. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now he didn't have to. He could have taken the traditional route. If you look at the map right here, you'll see that there's a there's a there's a traditional route. If you look at Samaria, Galilee, Judea, you can't really see this. It's a little small. But here is where. Uh, here's Here's the way you travel around. You go, you go around this whole Samaria issue. You avoid this city, right? And 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 Jacob's well was right about here. And so Jesus is traveling through, but but lots of other people, when they went, they went around. Lots of Jews went around because they didn't want to be now. Check this out: contaminated by running into Samaritans or interacting too much in their mindset they couldn't they couldn't even like in the re- in the most religious mindset of the day there was a problem with seeing people accurately and they marginalized the samaritans because the samaritans were half-breeds they weren't real Jews they didn't even have the whole torah they didn't they didn't they didn't they didn't embrace them they thought they were they thought they were people who were not pleasing to God, so displeasing that they couldn't have anything to do with them, and they hated them. It was a major oversight in their lives. They, 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 they were God's people, but they developed this way of looking at the world around them that was terrible. And so Jesus... As he does often, he busts through the barrier, and he goes, and he, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon, so it's middle of the day, it's really hot, and this woman has come to draw water. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The writer of John has little parentheses here to instruct us. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She's really curious. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank for it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, you and I have this like picture of this story. Some of you have heard it before. And so you think this is like, like, oh, I get what he's doing. I see what's happening. But the woman doesn't get it quite yet. She still thinks he's talking about physical water. And I want you to notice, notice what Jesus does. He doesn't start with her problem. Don't, you got a problem. This is how we, this is how we do evangelism so often in America. You know, you have a problem. And, I have the solution. (laughs) Jesus doesn't start with the problem. He starts with her need. If we peel back the layers of the story, we would find that she's probably, likely, ashamed of the life she's living and goes to the the well in the middle of the day maybe based on the fact that she just doesn't want to endure the crowds when they go at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. She doesn't want to be with these other people. Because she's, she's really had, her life is a mess. It's, it's really broken down. So she's here um, under the hot sun, and Jesus begins. He doesn't have to do it. He's there resting. He's walking. The disciples have gone to get food. He's just hanging there, and he says, could you give me a drink? I love how Jesus does this. This is such a, it's such a good way for, for us to study and see. He engages the woman about just what's going on around them. It's hot. They're both hot outside. They both need to drink some water. So Jesus in verse 19, sorry, the woman in verse 19, he says, sir, the woman said I can see. Oh, sorry, that's wrong. I skipped skipped ahead. Sorry. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water because this is a pain. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Like I love it. Even when he diagnoses the problem, he doesn't let her know that he thinks there's a problem. You know, people want to be respected. You know, whatever their perspective, whatever's going on in their life, it's hard for them to let you know what's really painful for them. It takes a real commitment to, f- to some kind of dialogue and relationship in some way where you can get to this moment. Now, Jesus was exceptional at it, but you and me, we need to work at this. And we need to become the kind of people that will engage people where they are based on what they need and help them discover what they really need. He says, go call your husband, come back. I I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This is how everybody does it. You want to start talking to them about Jesus stuff? You know what they want to talk about? Theology. Yeah, about all that uh, Noah and the flood stuff, I don't know if I can really believe that. They always want to go to this, right? They always want to go to the, the distracting stuff. And so he, Jesus, Jesus goes ahead and takes it. He says, okay, all right, you want to talk theology? Let me talk, let, me, let me talk about it with you. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We should worship what we do know. He's talking about the ways Jews and Samaritans view everything. He says, for salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words, they'll love God and they'll love people practically. Oh... That's what we're talking about. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And then the woman says, I know that, like I've heard about this idea, right? There's a Messiah who's coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. (laughs) Then Jesus declared, I love this, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I love this, this is just such an incredible moment in the conversation. There's a dialogue, pregnant pause right here. He says, I'm the one you're talking about. And suddenly the bumbling disciples walk in with food. Hey, hey, hey how's it going? Hey, hey Jesus, you need to sit down and eat some food. No, that's what happened. Verse 27, then, just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. <laughs> well, that's a problem, he can't talk with a woman. That's a problem. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, check this out. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, now, why did she leave her water jar? I don't know if she dropped it. I don't know if she's like, oh my gosh, something crazy is happening right now. And she dropped her water jar and went, or it was just a, the stupid disciples interrupting their awesome conversation right here. And they're like, then she just dropped it. She went, she went into the town. And look at what happens here. She said, she said, come and see. She went into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. (laughs) Hello. Awesome conversation. Here's the food. Here's the problem. The disciples aren't clued in to what's really happening. And so they keep thinking in the realm of just what is around them, and they keep thinking in terms of the problem. Jesus hasn't eaten, that's a problem. Why is Jesus talking to a woman? That's a problem. All they can see are the problems, and they wanna solve the problems. The problems are to be solved. And I think that sometimes we like get this mindset and we're trying to solve the problems. Jesus is trying to have a conversation that will reveal the problem. And so, they, so Jesus says to them something so interesting. He says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about, which essentially means I don't require this food that you're bringing me to be able to do the job that I'm doing right now. Because my food, is what he says in the next few verses, is to do the will of my Father. And the will of my Father is to draw people to himself. And that's what I'm doing right now. And so I don't really need your food because I have a stash of food that's so filling and so fulfilling that I don't need yours. All of us need a stash. We got to have a stash of food. So check this out. If you look at the verse, I'm almost done here. Come on. Are you stay, can you stay with me? Okay, so here it is. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him to eat. Rabbi, eat something. He says, I have food. You don't have about My food is to the will of the Father. Don't you have a saying? Here we are at the beginning where we started. Don't you have a saying? It's four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Look at verse 39. If you go down there, verse 39 says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, and he told me everything I ever did. Now listen, listen. Jesus is saying, I want you to see Open your eyes. He's just, the, what's just happened, he's had a conversation with this woman and she's running into town and now the people from the town are starting to come out to Jesus. And Jesus says, you've heard it, like this saying, four months more than the harvest, but I'm saying it's right here. I want you to see the harvest. Open your eyes. It's right here. And the disciples are like, where? Like we're, tr- we're, we're trying to see trying to see the harvest but these people are in the way these Samaritans they're kind of in the way we can't see the harvest the disciples thought the Samaritans were the problem Uh, your last few fill in the blanks I want you to get them because the harvest is here and very often the harvest will feel more like an inconvenience It'll feel more like somebody stopping you in H-E-B while you're trying to get your shopping done needing to talk to you. It'll feel more like you have an impression to buy groceries for the single mom that you know is in need and you're going to need to take it over to her house. It'll be more like an inconvenience Because you'll realize When you wanted to get stuff done In your backyard When you came home That your neighbor was in the front yard And you got engaged in a conversation You're like, oh my gosh I don't want to have this conversation But you do it because God Has food That will keep you sustained This is what we have to figure out How do we live like this? How do we think like this? How do we keep from feeling like the problem is the thing we have to address? See, so much of our lives, what's that last fill in the blank? The harvest is here. Put it up there, put it up there, Eric. God shows us the harvest, but we're often blindsided by the problem. So we look around in Austin and what do we say? Man, the traffic is so terrible. Man, this town's so stupid. There's people everywhere. Oh, the cost of living is so awful. This is so terrible. I can't believe the price of houses. This is, a... don't, don't see the problem. See the harvest. Oh, what's going on in the city? Man, there's so, so all this political wrangling, wrangling and, and, and rancor and it's so awful. It... See the harvest. Don't 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 just don't just see the problem. These kind of people, I can't believe the way they're acting. I can't believe the way these people are. These people are the enemy. Those people are the harvest. I I just want you to go on a journey with me over the next few weeks. I don't even have all of the. I don't even have all the series kind of lined out because I don't want to just give like super like simple answers because I think this is hard. I think this is hard in a consumer-driven, convenience-minded society. I think we have to like tear the layers back of what this means for each one of us. So I want to invite you on the journey to to open your eyes. Put that last line up there. Last line up there, Eric. When God opens your eyes and his love starts flowing through us, guess what happens? Their eyes are opened as well. Like that's what the light is. That's what this is. That's what happens. Love begins to flow through and then they, something illuminates for them. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads and let's just let God speak to us we're going to come to the Lord's table. And as we come to this table, I want you to ask hard questions of yourself. The first question is, do you have a life, a spiritual life that is meaningful enough to feed you? Do you have a spiritual life that's meaningful enough and close enough to Jesus to feed you when all the problems seem like they're pressing in on you? Do you have a relationship with God that is deep and meaningful enough to focus on on what's true versus what is so hard and what is so difficult and what's so challenging? And if you don't, I want to invite you to a relationship with God that that will cause you to look at life in a completely different way. Inconveniences will turn into opportunities problems will co- will begin to turn in the way you approach them the way you see them to God's will for your life and his and his desire and purpose for you I want you to come to this table and I want you to I want you to leave your way of seeing the world at the table because when you come to this table it changes everything about how you see the world because you're coming face to face with a man Jesus himself who gave his life Gave it all His body broken For you and for me So for our healing He came and he, Everything was broken in His life And it it sits here on a On a plate symbolically in bread And we take the bread And we leave what we bring to the table And we receive what He offers us We come to the cup And it represents the washing away of sin The washing away of a an old paradigm, a way of looking or a way of closing our eyes, if you will. I want you to come to this table and I want you to be willing to open your eyes.